Welcome to CPO Open Mic, the podcast series that brings you experts in procurement. Feline CPO Mike Schiappa sits down with leaders all over the industry to chat about their areas of expertise, passions, and a lot more. Tune in to every episode each month by following Mike on LinkedIn. Hello, everyone. Mike Schiappa here, Chief Procurement Officer at Beeline. And welcome back to the podcast series, CPO Open Mic. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Eloise Epstein, partner at Carney Consulting. Dr. Epstein is a digital futurist and Carney partner based in San Francisco. She has over two decades of experience working with clients to develop digital procurement and supply chain strategy. She is a frequent presenter about digital procurement and an author of Trade Wars, Pandemics, and Chaos, How Digital Procurement Enables Business Success in a Disordered World, and a co-author of Disruptive Procurement, Winning in a Digital World, Doing the Right Things in Procurement. So, Eloise, thank you again for joining me on the podcast. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I don't know about you, but I can't believe it's been one year since we did this the first time. I know, it's crazy to think that. <laughs> you were my very first guest when I launched this uh, podcast. I was so excited to have you on. We had met a few months prior to that, but I don't know. It's just amazing that it's been a year. Again, welcome back and thanks for joining me. Oh, uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. How's the summer treating you so far? Okay. Good. It's been super, super busy because I've been traveling and there's a fair amount of just busyness in the market. So I feel like I blink and three, four, six months go by. Yeah. It's amazing. I've seen you've been pretty active traveling a bunch this year, meeting with clients and business leaders, going to, I believe, some conferences maybe as well and presenting. So how has the last year been going? Just tell me a little bit about your travels and your uh, clients and business leaders that you're talking to. Yeah. I started traveling. I like the sort of joke that I'm doing the book tour that I couldn't do in 2021, but I've been going to meet clients, do workshops, do Q&A sessions. I took a European trip and went all around to different clients there. I saw 15 different clients and it was great. And I saw a bunch of startups and just met with people and it just reinforced how great it is to be in procurement right now. The uh, innovation, the passion, the uh, je ne sais quoi, as they say, it's just super exciting to be in this space right now. Yeah, it certainly is. And there's obviously been a spotlight on procurement for this past year as well. And probably for the next few years ahead, even just with economic conditions and what have you. No doubt. No doubt. So I'm just curious, how does it like, so just being back out there, obviously COVID wore us out for a little bit, but getting back out there, people are excited for face-to-face meetings. I'm seeing it on my side quite a bit. You feel good about that? I do. I, and I have to say, I still wear a mask in most places. <laughs> and if you see my pictures of me on LinkedIn, you almost always see me in a mask <laughs> or socially distanced Well, and almost always outside, except when I'm meeting with clients. So I still do take the precautions and it, it wears on me when I'm traveling because mm. I will, I fly from San Francisco to London. I'm wearing a mask pretty much the whole time, but it is definitely different. And I'm a little more edgy getting in on public transportation or in Ubers or whatever, but it feels so good to be face to face. And Mike, actually you're one of the people I haven't met face to face yet, but I yeah. can't wait till we meet. Yeah. We definitely got to do that sometime. Yeah. I've been I'm similar. I'm maybe a little bit more 
relaxed with the mask, but when I'm on the plane and certainly walking through the airport, I was just coming back from Jacksonville yesterday, did this, did the same thing, wore it. It's not as long of a flight as you from going to London, but yeah, yeah, I'm pretty, pretty cautious with that as well. What I'd say too, is I used to get the flu at least once a season and I'd still get a flu shot and I'd still get it and it would just knock me out. So now it's kind of, Hey, I'll wear the mask all the time because you know what I could do without getting the flu ever again. Oh yeah. Yeah. The flu is no bueno. It's not okay. <laughs> so you know, let's talk about the market a little bit. How has it matured or how has it changed since we spoke about this last time? I'll try to give you an answer. That's not a mini lecture, but it is, it still continues to be absolutely bonkers. And it certainly, the amount of money just keeps flowing in. When I was in Europe, in the course of five days, I counted almost 800 million in venture capital funding. Yeah. And I was meeting with my colleagues at the end of that week, and I just kept pinging them saying, here's another one, here's another one, here's another one. So I think on one hand, you have this influx of capital just wildly coming in. And on the other hand, some consolidations and you see some merging and I see several startups that are struggling. And so I think we're going to have some contraction and some continued growth. And so it's going to pulse, I think, a little bit on, on those two dimensions. And that's natural. That's normal. But I don't think there's going to be any shortage of investment and sort of new innovation, new ideas. And so I'm very heartened by that. I think procurement is cool, as they say. Yeah, I've been seeing that too. And I'm learning a lot about the private equity side of the house and venture capitalists and the money absolutely has been flowing like crazy for the last year or so. It's really interesting to see these companies get the capital and then even more interesting to see what are they actually doing with that capital? Are they investing more in the technology? Are they investing more in marketing? Where are they prioritizing those dollars? I think is it's interesting to see how that evolves as well. Absolutely. And you can tell a lot about the maturity and the trajectory of each of these companies based on where they spend that money. And more importantly, who they're hiring. I track closely both hires and people that exit. And when people exit that I know from a company, I always track them down and find out why. And that gives me a good sort of pulse on who's geared for success and who might be in trouble in a few months. Yeah. Interesting. Now, so you talked about, definitely I've seen the contraction convergence of some of these companies. And I think some of them make sense to me. I don't know a lot about some of those companies, but just based on basic research, they make sense. And the contraction piece, I definitely can see that. I'm more curious about some of these kind of next evolution startups, are they really bringing new technology to the forefront or is it like existing technology and making it look better or making it faster, easier? What, do you, what are you seeing in that startup space? That's an interesting question. <laughs> I would say, so I think we should go discipline by discipline. Okay. So let me start what's top of mind and top of my research agenda. So I just got through evaluating 237 ESG startups. Now, the first thing that caught my mind is I didn't know there were 237 ESG startups. So that really drew my attention. But when I got into the details, I realized that most of them are, are okay. There's not, I'm not criticizing uh, any of them. But also out of that 237, I think three were compelling, three, three that might end up on my spider chart. 
So you can see that there's a lot of money going into quote unquote ESG, but not a lot of next generation solutions. And I think I see the same thing in risk. I have one of my colleagues on my team is doing the same exercise on risk. It's a smaller market, but still the same thing. And when we talk about risk management and the tools that are out there, it's still very immature. And I've spent yeah. a lot of time talking to these folks and telling them what they need to do and where they can improve and go further. There's a lot of growth in these two disciplines. I think then if we go to some of the other areas, you know, I'm very big on category solutions and I put Beeline in there. And so I'm very bullish about those solutions. So I think we're going to get more of those and they're going to get more and more nuanced. And so I think that's great. And that excites me a lot. And then I think the other, the more traditional sourcing, contracting and requisitioning and payments, there's some stuff that's come along, but none of it's been breakthrough. There's things I like. I've seen a couple solutions in the CLM space because we all thought that was pretty mature. And what I realized is that you had all the old players and then you get the upstarts that have come along and they disrupted the whole CLM market. And now you've got new solutions that are attempting to disrupt those solutions. And I think that's utterly fascinating because what we're starting to see is a lot of these solutions that are they've been around for 10 plus years, they're hitting middle age. And so now they're becoming these sort of impediments to success. And it's really interesting to see that. In middle age, I love this. I, I remember when we talked last time, you were very bullish on like the self-service solutions where you would put it more in the hands of the hiring or the managers rather than the procurement really driving the activity through the, through a sourcing tool, for example. So we talked about one of the sourcing tools, allowing the end user or the internal customers, the buyers to actually do the sourcing. Is that, you still like that? I'm doubling down on that. No doubt in my mind that yeah. procurement cannot be in the middle of the transaction in any way, shape or form. And the more that we bring procurement to where the user is and allow them to interact, I would double down on that and place a big bet. Yeah. That's really interesting. Now, are you seeing that actually stick in organizations at all? I think there's one caveat I would give to that in that the problem we have now is the user experience that fronts this is missing. So it's evolving, but it's missing. That I think is problematic because right now, all the solutions I lined out, I might have to log into five or six or 10 tools and that might be technically self-service, but it's not sophisticated self-service. And so until we can get that user experience that masks all that complexity and streamlines it in, and where I can just work in a chat bot, or I can just go to a single screen with all that complexity abstracted, then it will truly be self-service versus I go to whoever for this and some other site for that. And I think that's holding us back. I like the self-service model. I haven't seen it stick with any of the folks I speak with yet. I think some organizations are still struggling a little bit in terms of who they want to be in the next five years when they grow up. What do they want to do? It still feels slow to me. And I know we talked about that last year from a procurement digital transformation or not even a transformation, just putting more digital into the, into their processes and their overall organization. I feel like it's still slow moving. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. This also gets back to more 
op model implications because you can't put in a self-service tool and still put yesterday's governance on top of mm -hmm. it. Because then all you're doing is giving me a very nice tool with a really bad process. So I think the op model maturity is what needs to come next. And I've talked about that from the get-go, that this technology is great, but it all of a sudden breaks open a whole lot of assumptions that we've had in from an op model design. And so first and foremost is process design. So you're going to put in a great new tool, but you better streamline the process because a tool that still has 15 layers of approval is still a horrible user experience. So it has to be holistic beyond just the tool itself. And I don't think we've done a really good job of integrating or updating the process in parallel with the technology deployment. And in the context of governance, whether it's regulatory governance or internal corporate governance, and in an era where I can use data, I can use process mining to improve that process, to, to reduce the bottlenecks. I can use the analytics to determine where I'm in compliance or out of compliance or to prevent compliance problems in the first place. All of that has to come together in the design, in the technology selection, the deployment, and the process redesign. That's what it means to be digital, but we're not there yet. We're still running yesterday's op model with tomorrow's technology. I think you just hit the nail on the head there. Wow. I see that a lot. I see process design or the lack of process design just with old processes trying to implement new technology. It's just not, doesn't work. And think about how all these old processes, they were probably designed in a fairly linear way, but then you'd go deploy them in a tool. The tool couldn't 10 years ago do the things we needed it to do. So what did you do? We added more systems. We added people to cut and paste data from one system to another. I always love that because they weren't integratable and all kinds of excuses. And then some piece of that human intervention required approvals. So we do all this other approval stuff. And like some of these processes that I look at with my clients, I just like, it hurts my head. <laughs> and so to really be digital and challenge the fundamental premise of we have a need and how do we deliver the need and what's the fastest way to do that and the most efficient that meets these governance objectives. We're not asking that question. We need to be, that's exactly what we need to be doing. Do you have any clients just for an example, like maybe one that's fairly progressive that you've been working with or advising that really did make a significant amount of change and what some of the impacts were? Yeah, I highlighted British Telecom in my book and they're doing a lot of what I'm talking about. They are operating in an environment that they're their own company. And so every dollar saved is a direct impact to the bottom line. So they're incented, and I've always loved this, they're incented to not add this extra complexity. And I'm joking about being middle-aged, but I also think there is an element of comfortability. There's comfort in slowing things down. And in a large enterprise, that can serve individuals well, but not the function or the enterprise itself. And so I think you get behavior that is out of sync. It's not malicious, but it's out of sync with sort of high performance companies. And in what I like about BT Source is that there's no room. There's like literally no room for people to hide in the morass of complexity. 
And so basically it's clear what everybody's doing and it's transparent and everybody's accountable. And when you have that kind of culture, then you can't sit there and create a bunch of excuses and roadblocks as to why we can't change. And if you recall at the back of my book, one of the elements I highlighted is oftentimes digital transformations fail because of the middle managers. They can fail because of weak leadership, but they also get really bogged down with middle managers who are not incented to drive the different ways of operating. And that's what you have to be really attentive to. That's so interesting. One of the things I did want to talk to you about was internal culture and you just brought it up. And I see it so many times with some of our clients and prospects as well, where, you know, they have a hard time making decisions. There's a ton of people that they have to deal with. And just the culture is not conducive to progressive or even making smart decisions for future growth or success. Transformation is huge. And the ability to make transformation stick in an organization when you have culture that doesn't allow for it. It's just spinning your wheels in the mud type of deal. So you're still seeing that as well. Oh my God. Yeah. And so I should say I'm working on my next book right now, and it really is about this culture of transformation because this is really the gap. And I'm bemused that every enterprise is in the midst of a digital transformation, is starting a digital transformation, just finished a digital transformation. But what is it they say? The proof's in the pudding. When I talk to these folks, it's clear they have not transformed. They just wasted tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on a transformation that didn't stick. And so that's one of the topics that I'm tackling because what you just described, if that still exists after the digital transformation, then we haven't done a transformation. We've adopted technology. We have consolidated systems. We have done other things that might be good, but we did not transform digitally. And I see this because I work solely with procurement, right? I'm not a generalist. I'm not trying to work on other sides of the business. I see this very precisely in the procurement world. So that's how I test whether or not a digital transformation really took hold. Because if it did at the corporate level, if they truly transformed the enterprise, then everybody that I deal with in procurement should be operating with a certain set of capabilities. And I see none of that, almost nowhere, and hmm. with a few choice exceptions. And then the even worse is you see waterfall masquerading as agile. <laughs> or at least in name only. I'm bemused by that. My colleague, Anna Kraft, came up with this term, but the, it's the corporatizing of agile, which is really taking something that's very dynamic and making it slow, methodical, and not have the impact or slowing the impact on that. That's so funny. <laughs> I love it. So you brought up the book, right? Are you still doing research on the next book or is it in motion? Like where are you, where are you with that? Yes. And yes. And yeah. both and, and on some days, just like scratching my head, wondering what ex exactly yeah. I, I decided to get myself into, but I very much am in the midst of the research and writing. There's some sections that are sort of flashed out and I'm just need to finish writing them. There's others that I'm in the midst of researching. I am coming up to an existential question with some portions, but we'll have to go into another book. But oh, wow. basically I want to take on big ERP and I'm debating whether or not that's worthy of a book of its own, or I should try to include that in mm. this book. So that's 
that sounds like a book on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So the problem with that is that it's such a hot topic that it's a now moment kind of thing. Yeah. So it's a good problem to have in terms of too much content, but. That's funny. I mean, I saw the success of your book from last year. I'm sure you're super proud of that. Tell me a little bit about just the success of that and what you've heard from friends and colleagues and new relationships you built because of the book. Was it everything that you wanted it to be or what did you learn from it? First of all, it's been an amazing reception. I get compliments, comments all the time, totally unsolicited. I can't tell you how many times I get onto a call with a client or a prospect and the first thing when I pop on the video, they hold up my book and they, t- <laughs> you know, which that alone is just awesome. Then they, they will point to something in the book. They will call out a quote. So in that way, the tone of my writing really connected with people. And I've had so many people tell me, thank you for putting words to this because I felt this, I hadn't been able to articulate it. So I really tapped into something in the zeitgeist in terms of dissatisfaction. On the more positive side, clients reach out all the time asking for workshops or for me to come do book talks, to do Q&A sessions. And that alone, I never expected that. But then even better than that is at least a dozen, probably more companies have made a required reading for all their employees. And so everybody in the procurement groups at these enterprises are reading my book. And that's very flattering. And I'm very honored. That's when you know that you've written something that's useful. My goal was to write something that was useful and not boring. And I think all of that is to say that I met those two objectives. And so I'm very happy about that. That's awesome. Congratulations again on that. It really is remarkable. I can't believe that companies are buying that for their employees to read. That's really cool. That's yeah. Really cool. <laughs> really? And that's, the, that's the mark of success. I'll be talking to clients and I'll see the book in their in the background of their office. And, yeah. and the other thing I've had, which is related, is my spider chart. People have it printed out in their office. My colleagues will go into clients and tell me that they'll see the spider chart printed on a wall. So like I'm a content creator. And so when people are consuming your content, it's very gratifying because it means you're actually doing something that's meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I have the spider chart on my desk. It's a great chart. It gets bigger and more complex, but it's, it's pretty cool. Thank you. And so actually I've got a big update coming. You know, when I talked about the ESG and risk, yeah. there's a little bit of white space on there. So I'm going to fill it out over the next couple of weeks because I'm going to have an ESG section and then a risk section. I do have those now, but I'm going to really blow that out. So that'll be exciting. I am absolutely running out of space on that. Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. I don't know too much about the ESG one. That would be interesting. Maybe we could talk about that next time. I think the risk space, I know very well there, that's a huge opportunity for someone to kill it in that area. No doubt. And, yeah. and I, <laughs> let's say I delight in giving feedback to these younger companies that are in this space because I can tell them where these things go wrong. And correspondingly, I work with my client on how best to use these tools when they actually deploy them. It's not the sort of interpreting of what they give you, but it's actually what you do with it after that. I think it's very compelling because we're still fairly immature at that. Yeah. Yeah. Just going back to procurement in general and organizations, I think we talked about like procurement's 
got a spotlight on them right now. Do you still feel like procurement's not appreciated the right way or appreciated enough within organizations? Are they elevated to the right level? I've always said that a CPO should be part of the executive group, but nobody wants to listen to me on that. But what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think that's true. I don't think procurement's as elevated as it needs to be, will be, should be, or so forth. But I also take a much more bullish approach to that and say that it's our job to push that door open and really make our way there. And when I look at what some of these really stellar CPOs have done, I think it's absolutely possible to do that. And I think in light of the market, in light of where we're going as a function, and I'll get to that in a second, the opportunities are more so than it being bestowed upon us. So let me qualify my statement a little bit. Tomorrow's supply chains, that's what we're doing now. We're designing the next generation supply chain, and those need to be secure, robust, resilient, efficient, socially conscious, and green. And increasingly, our supply chains are made up of third parties. And who better to deal with third parties than procurement? All of our frameworks, everything we do has been in support of managing third parties and essentially supplier management. When we do that, we have the ability to be at the forefront of this next generation supply chain design and implementation. And I think that's important because not only does that help us as the enterprise, but also multilateral enterprises. And we think about government oversight on supply chains, both nationalistically and globally. I think those of us in procurement are going to find ourselves at the nexus of all these entities and have the opportunity to really be seen in the center of that. To me, that's very exciting because we have all the skills, knowledge, frameworks, and whatnot to actually lead in terms of everything to do with running an end-to-end -end supply chain with third parties. And I always tease my colleagues that do manufacturing or logistics or so forth, because it doesn't matter what goes on in the warehouse or on the manufacturing floor. What we really care about is the end-to-end -end stitching together of all of this. And I always argue that those of us with procurement backgrounds, we're the ones that are going to be perfect at stitching all this together because it's all third parties. And I'd even go so far as to say that the biggest risks to any enterprise come from third parties and the greatest opportunities around ESG or next level partnerships and cost savings and even joint ventures come from third parties. And of course, you can see where I'm going with that is who better to deal with that and lead the charge into that than procurement or at least people with procurement backgrounds. So I very much see our path to that executive level is becoming COOs and asserting ourselves at the executive table. And that might take a few years, but there's no doubt on my mind that's where that's going. I love that. That's super interesting to me because one of my, my last question was going to be around talent and especially specifically within the procurement world. I have seen the evolution of the talent in terms of skill sets and how people are leading organizations. I think it's a little bit slower than I would have thought, but there are some progressive procurement folks that are doing a great job. What are you seeing in terms of your 
discussions with folks. You feel like the upskilling and the procurement folks are getting better and are becoming more impactful within their organization. I'll give you a sort of a philosophical response. Is it going as fast as we all would like? No, but I do think our trajectory is going to be much faster than say HR or finance or other sort of traditional functions, mainly because we've always been an afterthought, but that's changed dramatically. And so if I'm looking at the beginning of my career, I see nothing but opportunity to learn, to grow, to accelerate through the different levels very quickly. And we talked about all this technology and this digital capabilities. If you want to learn this stuff, why not learn it in procurement where there's nothing but innovation and billions of dollars going into ProcureTech to help me do my job. That's a pretty great place to be in. All you have to do is engage with it and you get to see the latest and greatest. I have to believe, now I don't know this is true, but I don't see the same innovation over there. To be fair, I don't look as closely, but I don't think you see the same level of excitement and innovation happening there. And so I think that's one area that is great. If you want to learn how a company operates, what better way to do that than how and where and who it sources with? And especially early in your career, that's a great opportunity. So you can start to see the opportunities stack up and also given procurement's background because people didn't seek it out specifically. People just ended up here, which is a very diverse workforce. And I think I look at all this DE&I stuff, other functions struggle with this, but I look around procurement. I see a lot of diversity and can we do better? Absolutely. But it's exciting because we tend to be less judgmental, so we say. And I think that bodes well for the function and the profession. And so if I'm looking around and placing bets on what's a great career path, especially for diverse candidates and especially for some of these work challenges, whether it's work-life balance or return to office and so forth, without getting into all those details, I think there's no doubt that procurement offers such a great pathway. That's sort of my optimistic view. So then the question is, how do we do that? Then I think it's incumbent upon the leadership. We need to actually start to create those opportunities. The digital garage is a good example of how do we engage with technology? How do we innovate with technology? And more importantly, and this is again, a key topic in my next book, is how do we learn these digital skills and change and do that up model I talked about earlier and build the skills to do that. And so at, at this point, I've forgotten what the question was, but I think that, you know, that to me, that's why procurement's a great place to develop all of this talent. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Well, that was well said. You got a mini lecture on that one. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> it's a passionate topic for me. It really is. Procurement is a cool place to be. And I think it will be for quite some time, especially with the technology that's being presented and being afforded for organizations to utilize in their enterprise. It's just, it's really cool. And it's not a surprise that, and you see this on LinkedIn, there's the hashtag making procurement cool. Yeah. I'm always smiling whenever I use it or I see it, but there is something to it because I don't think anybody is doing making HR cool or making finance cool. While it may just be something in the sort of LinkedIn world, I think there's something to it. We have an identity as a profession that now is our time to be part of something bigger. Couldn't agree more. That's great. 
Well, Eloise, thank you so much for joining me again. We'll just make this an annual thing going forward. It's been my pleasure. It was honored to be your first podcast interviewee. And when we you reached out about doing this again, I'm like, oh my God, how has it been a year? So <laughs> It's amazing. Yeah. Thank you again. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Extremely valuable. Great. Thank you. So this concludes our episode today. Be sure to connect and follow me on LinkedIn and follow at Beeline BMS on Twitter to stay informed on upcoming episodes. Thank you all for listening. Be safe out there and uh, have a great day. You've been listening to CPO Open Mic with Beeline CPO Mike Shiata. Tune in to each episode every month by following Mike on LinkedIn.